0: Our scripture reading is found in the book of Acts, chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The Word of the Lord. You may be seated. The title of the message this morning is All. It's such a short little word that when I saw it there in the bulletin, I thought, what happened to my title? But, <clears throat> but of course, Mark selects those and the Scriptures, and he had it down for all. And just one word, I thought, well, I guess we could do something with that. Then I looked at the text, and I was reminded of, of a little piece of interpretive um, strategy that's used by some interpreters of Scripture that might be helpful to you. I don't know if you've ever heard of this or not, but the theory is that the Old Testament people of God, Israel, and the New Testament people of God, the church, the body of Christ, which is composed of Jews and and Gentiles and everyone that you can imagine in terms of race and ethnicity, worldwide, are very, very similar. In fact, there's a lot of continuity between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. Uh, Some have emphasized the discontinuity, and there is some. The, The discontinuity is that of newness. Not so much difference, but newness and freshness. I was reminded when I was a kid, we had an automobile. It was our primary automobile the family. It was a 1951 Chevrolet. It was a two-door coupe. It was standard transmission. Three, you know, low, second, high gear, called three on a tree, with a clutch. My mom and dad had bought it when we were in Chicago. When dad was going to Moody Bible Institute, and it had no air conditioning. And we moved in 1955 with that automobile to Texas. Pulled a little car trailer and all of our earthly goods and moved from Memphis, Tennessee to Dallas, Texas. Got here on January the 1st, 1955. They were playing in the cotton bowl and the streets were so crowded we couldn't hardly get around. That was our car. For several years, I was a little kid. I remember, you know, no seat belt requirements in those days, no car seat requirements. I can remember on long trips laying up in the back part there under that that back windshield. You know, you could just stretch out up there and and just take a nap and just go for hours. And I remember being in that back seat with my little brother and I remember us fighting back in the back seat and wrestling and my dad pulling the car over and threatening to give us a whipping. I don't think he ever did. He gave us whippings for sure, but not on trips. But, but the threat was good enough. And I loved that car. In fact, we kept that car for a long time. I, it's the first car I was, when I was about 10 years old. I tried to learn to shift the gears. And we had a little bit of acreage, so I was able to drive it around the lanes on the place without getting out on the street. And so I learned to drive with that 51 Chevrolet. But then, in 1957, we bought a new car. And the new car was a 1957 Chevrolet. I wished I still had that car, by the way. And it was new. There was a sense, though, in which it was just like the old car. It had four wheels it had a steering wheel, it had an engine, but instead of that little six-cylinder, it had a V8 with a four-barrel carburetor. And instead of that three on the tree, it had a turboglide transmission. But it was a Chevrolet. And instead of it being a two-door coupe, it was a four-door station wagon. Is there anything worse than having a 57 Chevrolet to drive around high school is for it to be a station wagon. And that was the first car that I actually drove out around town and got my license and went to work in and all of that. I think you see my point. It's the old and the new. The new one didn't have air conditioning either. (laughs) I don't know what my dad was thinking in 1957, one of the hottest, worst times in Texas history in the mid-50s. Drought and everything. you can. But the drought broke. You remember when the drought broke? It broke in early 57. April 2nd, 1957, a tornado came. There's a few nods of heads. You remember that. It came across Oak Cliff and we were out in it. We had a wreck and it tore that 51 Chevrolet up. Fortunately, they were able to repair it, but it it was a wreck, and it was a horrible, frightening experience to look up and see that tornado coming right near what's now the Kessler Theater and tearing everything up. It looked like a huge column of, of I thought it was a house on fire, something had exploded, and my mother recognized it for what it was, and she was in a panic. And a car slammed into us. We were going down Davis Street and we were in a wreck. And then a tornado all at the same time. And then, of course, the floods came. Remember that year and the year following, the drought did break. The whole Trinity River Valley flooded. All of South Dallas was flooded. Large portions of Oak Cliff. Huge portions of the far southeast part. The Trinity River just completely covered everything. New day. New phenomenon. New car. We went out and got us a new A new car. The new is connected to the old. It's connected to the old in that it's the same. There's more continuity between the 51 Chevrolet and the 57 Chevrolet than there is discontinuity. The 57 is new, it's modern, it's better. It's better in so many ways. But it's still an automobile. And so it is with the covenants of God. The old covenant that God made with His people was a good covenant. The commandment was holy and righteous. It was a way that God could relate to His people. It was a way God could, could enter into covenant with His people. It was a way God could bring redemption to His people. It's a way that God's people could know Him and understand Him and come to love Him and serve Him and obey Him. But there was a new and a better covenant. And that's what we see here. One of the theories of interpretation, as I mentioned a moment ago, is that that theory that God's people in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, in the body of Christ, have very similar experiences, very similar experiences with God as those in the Old Covenant had. But yet there's a newness and there's a freshness to it. And the theory is that the book of Acts parallels in many ways the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. God sent Moses and Moses ruled with God's people and led God's people and did all that he did as a prophet and a leader amongst them. And then that Moses was Taken away. They didn't know where. But along came Joshua, whose name means Savior. Along came Joshua to lead the people. And he led the people in the footsteps of Moses. He didn't bring five new commandments. He made sure they worked on the old Ten Commandments. Joshua. And the book of Joshua follows a flow of how they made that transition under leadership going from Moses... To Joshua. And so the theory goes that in the Gospels we have Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, but he ascends and comes then the Holy Spirit under the leadership of a new generation, the apostles. And we talked a couple of weeks ago how the people continued, they devoted themselves to the apostles. Teaching. we talk about the principle of apostolic authority in the Old Testament and where it, I mean in the New Testament, and where it comes from and how it is the grounding and the foundation for what we believe as Christians in the church. Well, as the theory continues, this period of time is the, is the Joshua period. It's the period of time when God is going to move His people to a new generation of leadership. Now there are quite a few features in the book of Acts and we may mention them as we go along and pick up with this study after Christmas. But let me just mention one for example. You remember the story in the Old Testament, the story of Achan. How that Achan sinned. Remember, and by keeping the stuff from Jericho and hiding it and lying to the people about what he had. And you remember how judgment came upon Achan and his household well in the New Testament we have Ananias and Sapphira very similar story they lied about their possessions and they lied to the apostles about about the goods that they had and they were judged they were struck down immediately with death you see God didn't change his operating principle a whole lot in the Old Testament community he gave them a stark and terrorizing and an arresting story of judgment and the demand for holiness and the demand for purity in the covenant community. He did the same thing in the New Testament in the book of Acts with the the early church with Ananias and Sapphira. And so that's what we have here. We have a situation where the disciples... The New Covenant community are gathered together and they're enjoying the things that are mentioned, the breaking of bread, which we'll talk about next week. And it says, An awe came upon every soul and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. What's happening here is God is manifesting Himself to the New Covenant community with miracle. And He is showing who He is and what He is able to do his power to this group of believers this new community which at this point comprised several thousand people principally there of course in the city of Jerusalem and as they begin to move out from there signs and wonders the signs of the apostles were healing peter healed paul healed peter and john stories of them Raising the dead on rare occasion. Prophecy, giving the word of God and having it come to pass. raising up men in the church who were prophets. God is making himself known by unusual event, miracle, signs, wonders. This is the same two words that said Jesus performed signs and wonders. Now the apostles are performing signs and wonders. It's signs and wonders that, that get the jaw to slack in awe and in recognition of something is powerful here. Something is real. Something is supernatural. Unless we get too far afield, let me just go back and illustrate what I'm talking about. Back in the days of of Moses. Listen to the, the story. Let me read narrative for you for a minute or two here. In Exodus 19, you're familiar with it. In the morning of the third day, you know to pay attention to it any time the Bible talks about the third day. In the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud over the mountains and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. The word translated awe in our text is the word phobio. We get our word phobia. It means fear. There's a sense in which God starts at ground zero with His people by terrorizing them in a good way. He wants them to know He is almighty. He is powerful He is capable of affecting their senses in such a way that He gets their attention, that He brings them to their knees, and that He causes them to pay attention to Him. Listen to the continuation of the narrative. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood their stand at the foot of the mountain. That means they just stood there, and they they wouldn't move any closer. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And then there's the account of Moses receiving the law, but then listen to what happens. Afterwards, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. And that's the same word that's used in our text. It's the Hebrew word for fear, for terror, for trembling. They saw this demonstration of God's power. They were afraid and trembled. And they stood afar off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You see what's happening? God is striking fear in the hearts of His people so that they will know who He is and they will have the proper reverence and respect. And they could not get their feet to move any closer to that mountain. Now the summary of everything that Moses did in those days is wrapped up in the very last passage in the book of Deuteronomy. The very last passage of the book of Deuteronomy is the transition between The Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. And so listen to the transition passage. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom. Full of the spirit. That sounds like Acts language. Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses has laid his hands on him. That sounds like Acts of the Apostles language. So the people of Israel obeyed Him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. That was the experience with the apostles. Remember the qualification for being an apostle? You had to be one that was with the Lord from the beginning, face to face. That was where the apostolic authority was in the church. If someone had been with the Lord and had known the Lord face to face, listen to this say, saying about Moses, too. None like him for all the signs and wonders, miracle, is what validated Moses' position of authority. That's just like here in the book of Acts with the apostles. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds. That sounds like the book of Acts. We've been talking about the mighty deeds of the Lord is the subject matter of the people teaching and preaching at Pentecost. Remember a few weeks back? It was the mighty deeds of the Lord. And this is what happened in the Old Testament too. God had performed mighty deeds through Moses, and it concludes by saying, in the sight of all Israel. Fear. Respect. A proper understanding and recognition of the holiness, the power, the awesomeness, the awfulness, actually, I get a little, I quibble every now and then. We always talk about God is an awesome God. Are you saying He has some awe? Or is He an awe-full God? The, the connotation of the English has changed through the years. The old English was God is aweful. full He's full of awe. Awe-inspiring character in every way. And this is the way God's people should be. We should recognize God by the signs and wonders that are given, recognize Him for who He is. Even in our ESV footnote, the word fear is given for all. It is fear. Now there's a sense in which it's positive. There's several hundred references to this word in the Scriptures. Several hundred used in different ways, but so often it has the idea of reverencing God. You remember when Abraham was on the Mount Moriah with the altar built and the fire burning, when he raised his knife to slay his only son, Isaac, that his hand was stayed and the voice of an angel came back and said, Don't do it! Because the Lord says, Now I know you fear me. God was impressing upon Abraham who he was. And Abraham was so afraid of God that he would not disobey the commandment to slay his son. The good things about God cause us to admire Him. His greatness, His goodness, His majesty. But there are reasons to fear Him. Not the least of which is His wrath. God's wrath abides upon the sinner. The Bible says God is angry or wrathful with the sinner every day. God loves us, but He hates sin. And His wrath abides, just rests on it. He doesn't ever change his mind. It is the settled disposition of God towards sin that he hates it and that he will destroy it. And if the sinner clings to his sin, the sinner will be destroyed in the act of God destroying the sin because they're inextricably bound to sin and the sinner. And they will not separate themselves. And God going after the sin consumes the sinner. God's wrath has been poured out. That fiery judgment that should cause us to lose a night's sleep and to be in terror of His holiness and His wrath as long as we are in our sin. That wrath has been poured out. It's poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, you want to know what God thinks of a sinner? Look what He did to Christ when Christ was bearing Our sins. Look out, he smote his only son. Look at what he let happen to that designated sinner hanging on that middle cross and forsaking and punishing and pouring his wrath upon that sinner. And wrath is like a fire that burns, like a consuming fire. We see some of these these incredible fires out west that will take the the brush and the trees and the grass and just with the winds will just cover an area in a few short minutes and just scorch it over, consuming everything in sight. The recent wildfires, especially in California, are an illustration of of, of the awesomeness of that. Do You know the safest place to be? when the fire of wrath comes in a place that's already been burned over, sitting someplace where God's wrath has already scorched everything inside and purged it, and that's the cross, and that's Christ. If you're in Christ by faith, the fire of wrath has already hit that place, and there is no need any longer to be terrorized by God's wrath because it has been poured out upon Christ and He has cleared the ground so that you might dwell safely in the presence of God forever and ever.